0: Today, I have a special guest with me, Philip Lee, who's written a number of books on uh, Southern history. Uh, One of them I actually have in my hands right now called Southern Reconstruction. I haven't um, read the whole thing yet. I look forward to doing so. What led you to write on this subject? Because, I mean, this isn't something that someone usually wakes up one day and says, yeah, I'd love to be blacklisted from academia. I'm going to write positive things about uh, Southern history. And uh, you seem to have done that, writing positive but accurate um books uh w- what made you interested in this to begin with
1: well i guess you know as i get older i I, uh, I care less about what people think and more about you know what what do i want to accomplish and what i felt was with the confederate monuments that they were getting kind of a bum rap but even though uh the confederacy was set up uh, to perpetuate slavery at least for the first seven states um that there was still a lot to admire in, in the, uh, the leaders, particularly the military leaders. And there may be a, a day to come again when we'll want the kind of character that some of those leaders uh, provided. If you look, for example, at World War I and World War II and Vietnam, uh, a number of the soldiers that went there, at least some of them, were inspired by Confederate leaders. One of them was uh, Dwight Eisenhower.
2: There are a good many of you people here, both photographers and, and uh, representatives of press, have been going into my office for the past four and a half years, occasionally. No doubt you've noticed that on the wall there are the prints of four men. Men that I considered, in my book are uh, about the four top Americans of the past. They are Franklin, Washington, Lincoln and Lee, and anybody who ever tries to put me in any other uh, relationship with respect to General Lee is mistaken.
1: When you think about the, the valor of the soldiers in defending the, uh, the, their, their home and hearth, which is really the motivation for going to war, the, 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 the difference, the, the motivation for secession was not the same as the motivation for going to war. There could have been secession without any war. But um, the valor of those soldiers is, is far beyond what most people can contemplate. Our, our total casualties in World War II, which uh, a lot of your grandparents can probably remember, is was about 425,000. In the Civil War, when the population was much lower, the, the, the casualties, the deaths were about six to 700,000. If you were to apply that ratio to the current population of the United States, that would be 15 million people killed in the war. Wow. Um, so there was a determination there and a valor that is an inspiring example for future warriors. World War One the most decorated soldier was Alvin York. He was from Tennessee. World War II, the most decorated soldier was Audie Murphy. He was from East Texas. The Vietnam War, uh, one of the best examples of the bower there was uh, Carlos Hathcock, who was a sniper. He had more kills than anybody else, and he grew up in Arkansas. All three of those men, as, as youth, They hunted small game for food, not for sport. They were born into grinding poverty, which was left over from the Civil War. But despite that, they showed their loyalty to the United States. And even today, 44% of the people that volunteer for the military services in America are from the South, whereas it represents only 36% of the nation's population. My father was from Arkansas. My mother was from Ohio. I have relatives on both sides of the Civil War, but kind of like Shelby Foote, I mean, I have an affinity for the lost, the people that lost, because they gave everything and lost.
2: People who say slavery had nothing to do with the war, just as wrong as the people who say slavery had everything to do with the war. That was a very complicated civic thing. Uh, Robert Toombs or Somebody once gave the best definition for that war I've ever heard. He said it was a war of one form of society against another form of society. And because one of those forms of society included uh, chattel slavery, and the other side didn't, except to a, a, a limited extent, uh, it's always been identified as a war over slavery. Uh, believe me, no soldier on either side gave a damn about the slaves. Uh, they were fighting for other reasons entirely in their minds. Southerners thought they were fighting the Second American Revolution. Northerners thought they were fighting to hold the Holy Union together. And that held true throughout the whole war, except for some people who were absolute partisans on both sides. Fire eaters in South Carolina and abolitionists in Massachusetts. Uh, but most of the people were fighting because they were fighting for. Southerners once said, I'm fighting because you're down here. Uh, if you want to invade my home, you've got me to fight. Others say you're trying to f- tear the fabric of the Union, therefore you should be put down and uh, not allowed to do what you claim you want to do. It's a very complex subject, and I'm sorry to see it uh, degenerate into such things as uh, identifying that flag as a symbol of, uh, of racism. It is not. It was never intended as such.
1: To me, the uh, the inspiration that they that, that they can provide could be crucial to this country again. I mean, for example, Robert E. Lee is uh, is being criticized because he was a slaveholder. In truth, in his adulthood, it wasn't he wasn't a slaveholder. It was his wife and father-in-law when his father-in-law died he was given five years to emancipate or manumit the slaves which he did but if you look at the war itself contemporary to the war there was no commander that was more respected by his troops in fact actually beloved by his troops than robert e lee you can look at the north or the south grant didn't even come close to having the admiration that robert e lee did amongst his troops at the Battle of the Wilderness, for example, which was after the peak of uh, the war, the, the, the Confederacy was on the downhill, but still at the Battle of the Wilderness, the, as the Northern troops were about to make a breakthrough, Lee was on his horse, Traveler, and uh, the uh, Texas Brigade came up, and um, he, he, he yelled at him, he said, we've got to stop this attack. If we don't stop this attack, the whole defense line is gonna collapse. Follow me, I will lead you. Hmm. Well, um, the soldiers wouldn't let him go. They said, we'll stop this attack, but you need to go to the rear, lead hmm. to the rear. So they actually were ready, to act spontaneously, to put their lives at risk without letting him risk his. They did not want him to risk. That's how much they respected and admired him. They knew with him, he had a winning record and they, there's just a lot to admire about Lee.
0: I've read a few biographies about him and, and I've enjoyed learning about him. He's inspired me, not just as um, an American, uh, someone with a southern heritage. i I'm, like you, I have family on both sides, uh, but also just a, a Christian. I, I, I admire the way he tried to consistently live out his faith.
1: The Most memorable book that I've read in the last five or six years that has inspired me more than even uh, Robert E. Lee is Company H by Sam Watkins, who was in the first Tennessee regiment, he was a private. That is a remarkable book. That tells you what it was really like to be in that fight. The Shakespeare Band of Brothers, there's a lot to that.
0: So so I want to ask you a few questions, because seeing these monuments come down everywhere, and and this is also something I, I spend a great deal of time talking about evangelical Christianity, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, especially, and kind of the liberalizing tendency uh, going on there. And one of the first things that I noticed in the liberalizing tendency is this anti-monument uh, craze, really.
1: We finally got the statue of Lee taken down. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls us time and again to test whether we are working with God for a vision of a world that includes everyone
0: or only those in our group. One of the arguments, and and this is, I think, coming from kind of a, a Christian direction in a way, some of the people who ask this may have good motivations, but they say... You know, if it offends people, then why not just take it down, just so it won't offend people? And I'd like to hear your response to that, since you're someone who thinks they should stay
1: up. The the response is that you should put up new monuments to the people that you want to honor that came later. Despite all the criticism that the southern states get for these monuments, if you look at the states that have made changes to respect the memory of Martin Luther King, it is far greater in the South than it is in the North. Mississippi, which has the Confederate battle flag in its state flag, has 16 streets and avenues named after Martin Luther King. Ohio, which has four times the population of Mississippi, has only eight. So I went through an analysis of some states that had comparable population, like New Jersey and North Carolina. North Carolina has 30 MLK streets, New Jersey eight. Hmm. So the the South has been respecting these people. Now, what you can see if you put up the new monuments to the people you want to honor is you it, it it enables the the casual observer to see how things changed, how American history changed, how the perception of history changed. But if they just see, you know, a, a blank spot, they don't know what was there before. They don't know that at one time. People did respect Robert E. Lee, and then if President Eisenhower put his put a picture of Robert E. Lee in the Oval Office. They wouldn't know that if those, those statues are gone. Put them both there. Go ahead and add, and that's the that's my solution.
0: So, so I think people are sort of conditioned into this, into thinking that Confederate symbols and monuments to soldiers just represent slavery and that's what the south fought for and that's why it's offensive that's why they should come down and i know one of the things that i've often said is that you know the monuments themselves usually say right on them what they're about and usually i've never seen at least up to, to this point a monument that says it was put here for slavery or for those who fought for slavery or for white supremacy or any of those things. It's usually for honor, for home, for those kinds of things. What was the reason that these Confederate symbols were put up in the first place?
1: The overwhelming reason was to remember the loved and lost. That's what it was. Now the Southern Poverty Law Center has come up with a graph that has correlates the, the erection of these statues with the Jim Crow and that sort of thing. It's a casual correlation, and it's not a causal correlation. Obviously, when the Civil War was over, the South was not only defeated, but it was bankrupt. There was no money for putting up statues to to remember the, uh, the soldiers. But when it came to the 50th anniversary of the war, the old soldiers were dying off, and uh, the the South began to have enough money to pay for these things. So that's why there was a peak after say 1900 until about uh, 1918 or let's say 1900 to 1920. That's why there was a peak of the statues that were put in at that time. But a a monument was put up in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee and there were a number of speakers and and, and there was a a poem that uh, one of the mothers wrote that I just took out one excerpt from it but here's what she said. What need to question now whether he was wrong or right, speaking of the soldier? We don't need to question whether he was wrong or right. He wields no warlike weapon now. He returns no foeman's thrust. Who but a coward would revile an honest soldier's dust? Who would re- hmm. but a coward revile an honest soldier's dust. He's doing what he's ordered
0: to do. I wanted to ask you about specific heroes because uh, where I am in Virginia, Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson have been monumental figures, and now they are basically being canceled. And I think Thomas Jefferson right behind them. The argument is that because they fought for a country uh, which promoted slavery, that's enough to cancel them. What do you say to people who make that argument?
1: There's no denying the the connection to slavery, but it's not the whole person. Consider, for example, Robert E. Lee, again, at Gettysburg. He's throwing the dice because he knows he doesn't have time on his side like the Union armies do. He's got to win this war as quickly as possible if he's going to win it at all. So he throws the dice on the third day at Gettysburg with Pickett's Charge. It's a failure. The soldiers come back. He rides out to meet them and he says this isn't your fault nobody is to blame but me now that is the kind of character that i want in future leaders political leaders of america business leaders of america citizens of america that is a an example of the kind of character we need if we're going to survive you know and prosper over the long term, as a country, that merits memorials. Jackson was also deeply deeply religious. He educated slaves. He had a Bible class for them, and he was the when the when when the South was everything was looking grim. McClellan had his army just outside of Richmond, six miles away, with overwhelming numerical advantage against the Confederates. Stonewall Jackson pulled miracles in the Shenandoah Valley and threatened threatened Washington, even though his army was so small that it it really couldn't capture, but it threatened Washington so badly that Lincoln called back the troops. And he never failed to um, take on the the challenges that might have seemed impossible to others. And and again, another example that is uh, inspiring. And these inspiring examples should not be erased. That's what taking down the monuments does. The respect and everything that people actually felt for the Confederate, all that will be gone. And all those virtues that go with it will be gone. And Look at the election, how many people take responsibility for their failures, like Lee did.
0: We don't take like the Corwin amendment or any of the statements made by Republican party leaders and um, state conventions in the North that you know wanted Free white cheap labor in the Western territories, etc. We, we don't take those things and say, well, that's just what the North's about. You know, any union monument needs to come down because clearly they were racist white supremacists. But for some reason, people like to do that with the South and they like to go to really two sources. And uh, the first is the Cornerstone speech, the second are, are some of the secession ordinances from the Lower South. Um, you want to just talk about that a minute? What, what do you, What's your take on that?
1: The typical the typical reaction from the, uh, the educator, the historians that uh, dominate the conversation now is, well, if you look at the uh, declaration of causes for secession from the deep South States, the first seven to secede, many of them cite slavery as their reason to secede. That's like a magician's trick. Look here, don't look over here because this is where I'm gonna pull the rabbit out. Look over <laughs> <laughs> like what, they, oh, what they will not address is why did secession need to lead to war? It didn't. They could have let the seven cotton states go and then see just, you know, what happens next. In fact, there were a number of leaders that were prepared to do that, including uh, Edwin Stanton, who later became Lincoln's uh, Secretary of War. Rutherford B. Hayes, who became president later, uh, Horace Greeley, who hmm. was the manager of the largest newspaper in the country. All of them were prepared to let the seven, those seven states go. And there wouldn't have been any war. We can't just put a halo around the northerner because he fought the war. It, there didn't need to be war. Now, let's look at the results of the war. Before the war, The South was the leading, was the low-cost, the single low-cost producer in the world for cotton. And cotton was uh, way on the upstream because before that, people made clothes out of wool and rawhide and stuff like that. You know, buckskin. Not very good. Cotton was a big revolution. Okay, so that was really on the upstream. So before the war, the South was the low-cost producer throughout the world of cotton. The historians will say, well that was because of slavery. Okay, after the war, the South remained the low cost producer of cotton because the war impoverished everybody in the South. Even as late as the 1930s and 40s, sharecroppers, tenant farmers in the South, were, they were working under with using tools that the Russian serfs of the 19th century were using. They didn't get tractors, they were using mules. And that's the way it was for 75 years or more after the the Civil War. So the northerners crushed the South economically, but they kept the advantage of keeping America the low-cost producer of cotton by treating the South as an internal colony to be exploited much like Ireland, uh, the Irish felt Great Britain did right after the civil war clearly the south needed to rebuild everything including their railroads but the north had tariffs on railroad iron so railroad iron that you could buy for 35 dollars a ton in london cost 80 dollars a ton in the united states because the producers in pennsylvania and other northern states did not let british iron into the united states that Look at the extra cost that, that, that the South had to pay. The prices were artificially inflated by the tariff, and we, in the South, had to buy all of that stuff from the North. That led to monopolization of, of manufacturing, which further penalized the South. In fact, if you look at the, if you examine the uh, the federal budget, what you find is that the South has already paid reparations. Well, let me explain. For for 25 years after the Civil War had ended, over half of the federal budget was devoted to three things. Interest on the federal debt, retirement of the federal debt, and back in those days they actually did retire it, and union veterans' pensions. That was over half of the federal budget, cumulatively, for 25 years. Not one of those items benefited an ex-Confederate. In fact, Union veterans' pensions by 1893, they represented 90, excuse me, they represented uh, 43%. No, they represented over 40% of the entire federal budget in 1893. That one item, union veterans' pensions, that's like telling Japan and Germany, they got to pay the veterans' pensions for the GIs. Union veterans' pensions were still being paid as late as 2016. They were? Yes, they liberalized it to the families. And it was used, it was used as a bribe to the retired veterans to get them to support tariff legislation.
0: Well, hold on, hold on. 2016. So, what are we talking? Like great, great, great grandkids are getting.
1: What happened is they, <laughs> can, yeah, they continually liberalized the, the, the terms on who got to get, get paid. Now, yeah, wow. there were pay. I mean, there might have been two or three, but I did find that as late as 2016, they were still being really paid. <laughs>
0: wow. Okay.
1: And they actually peaked in 1921. They were I'm going sure. up every year until 1921, then they started to come down. Now the uh, now the, now the retirement of the debt. Now during World War II, the United States we had war bonds. That's like going to Germany and Japan, who we defeated, say, okay, now you got to help us pay off our war bonds. Right? That's the South had to help pay off the, war, the Union war bonds. Nobody in the South benefited from that. Yeah. And then the, uh, the third thing was the interest on the war bonds. And finally, they actually, in those days, there, there was a paper money and a gold. The gold standard was, was what really counted. paper money was discounted to gold. So the bonds were bought with paper money during the war because they didn't have enough gold during the war because they didn't know if they were going to win or lose. So the bonds were bought with paper money, but they were redeemed in gold. It was a, it was a windfall. Of, it's hard to know the average because the, the paper money fluctuated at a discount to gold, but it got as steep as 65%, meaning that a, a paper dollar was worth 35 cents in June, July of 1864. So that's the point I want to make. If you look at those payments—Union veterans' pensions, interest on the Union federal debt, retirement of the Union federal debt—those those three items were of no benefit to ex-Confederates. I,
0: I can see why this <laughs> would be information that some of the um, elites in academia and even in Washington may not want getting out there. Because I mean, be right now, social justice warriors want reparations for slavery, but if you if you start thinking through what you are telling me um, and we want to compare apples to apples, that means you'd probably uh, be wanting reparations for the region of the South for uh, the, what they had, they underwent. Um, It it really just, it it takes the whole narrative and flips it on its head. Honestly,
1: You you gotta ask that key question. Well, why did the North fight? Why did they not just let them secede? Well, they fought because they wanted to remain. Uh, they wanted to maintain economic dominance.
0: Yeah, if you you read Lincoln's first inaugural, um, he he even seems to admit that that he slavery doesn't really have anything to do with his motivation. It just we we need to keep the union and preserve it. And the Corwin Amendment, of course. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things we could bring up that prove that. Uh, there, there was an economic motive for going in. What about the cornerstone speech, though? That's probably the biggest thing you see online when people just wanna say, it's all about slavery, read the cornerstone speech. What, what do you make
1: of that? Well, the cornerstone speech was a speech made by Alexander Stevens, who was, who was a brilliant uh, politician or statesman. Uh, Lincoln respected him when Lincoln was in Congress some 15 years earlier. And it was basically, uh, there's no word-for-word word transcript of it, but basically what he said is that, you know, the, the, the black race is inferior, and that's why it needs to be, uh, you know, they need masters, they need somebody to take care of them, they need to be told what to do. So he said that uh, in 61. So, that's often cited, but what's not cited is a speech he made in 1866, which was less than a year after the South had been defeated. And in this speech, he was addressing the Georgia General Assembly. Now, here's the important point. This Georgia General Assembly was not a reconstruction assembly, it was not a carpetbag. This was all white Southerners he was talking to. Every member of this General Assembly was a white Southerner. And he's saying, Wise and humane provisions should be made for ex-slaves, so that they may stand equal before the law, in the possession and enjoyment of all rights of person, liberty, and property. Many considerations claim this at your hands. Among these may be stated their fidelity in times past. They cultivated your fields, ministered to your personal wants and comfort nursed and reared your children and even in the hour of danger and peril they were in the main true to you and yours to them we owe a debt of gratitude as well as kindness i speak for them as we know them to be having no longer the protection of a master or a legal guardian they now need all of the protection which the shield of law can give but above all this protection should be secured because it is right and just.
0: So to kind of uh, wrap things up here, uh, there was a war that killed 600,000 people and another million afterward, uh, put put a whole region of the country in gri- grinding poverty for 75 years. And, um, and there were some heroes that came out of that war. And there's been really a lot of, I think, um, a lot of good progress made in reconciling these two. Uh, parts of the country uh, and maybe World War Two and World War One uh, had a lot to do with that um, But now we're in this this kind of situation where after reconciliation has occurred it, There it, we're in this weird <laughs> This weird era where we want to just go rip down things uh, Figures that died over a hundred years ago. Um, what's what's the? Explanation for this hatred all of a sudden and, and the willingness to blacklist anyone like yourself who will defend uh, these monuments thing up.
1: Criticizing others is a dishonest way of praising ourselves. I think that's partly what's going on here. The social justice warriors are criticizing others to it's virtue signaling, right? Isn't that the current?
0: That's yeah, yeah.
1: What, but I also like what uh, uh, William Eames said. Um, he who marries the spirit of this age will find himself a widower in the next. That's mm-hmm. a good reason to leave those statues up. If you don't, tradition is important. Tradition is the wisdom of the ages. And before you cast aside tradition, you better be sure you've got something of value to replace it. And it shouldn't, tradition should be there. It's there for a reason. It's there because the accumulated wisdom of all, the, all our ancestors are, are baked into it. And,
0: and, and that wisdom is, would be in the monument, the markers that talk about the honor yeah. and the integrity and sacrifice. <laughs> uh, I want you to plug your website and your books. I'm holding one of them here, but uh, where can people go if they want to order Southern Reconstruction?
1: Uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble. Um, and you know most any bookstore can get them if you think the the story of the civil war is one-sided you should read reconstruction yes there was racism yes there was lynching yes there was the kkk but that's not the whole story the whole region was impacted You you know it the longest lasting legacy of reconstruction or the civil war was not racism. it was not segregation it was southern poverty Virginia mm. was one of the first to come out of it, but but, gosh, in Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, Alabama, and and South Carolina and northern parts of North Carolina, you that, so that poverty lasted a long, long time, mm. and it wasn't just blacks. Right, it, they, there was economic, the economic conditions between blacks and whites until say World War II of those sharecroppers and tenant farmers, they were almost identical. Oh, I know
0: know, my grandfather's from Mississippi was a cotton farmer one of 10 kids. And um, I mean, you know, their friends down the road were uh, people of color and they go fishing together. They were best friends, but grinding poverty, you know, you get a, for Christmas, maybe he got, you know, a piece of fruit or a piece of, you know, shoes, pair of shoes, but.
1: They don't really know that history. They don't, they, they have that family connection, which is valuable. Yeah. But just, you know, the northern historians and a lot of the southern historians that have been brainwashed just
0: don't seem to understand yeah well, real quick i'll just give a little personal uh, story and i'm sure you have many of these but you know i grew up in upstate new york um i have family you know from the south and the north and we go down to family reunions every year and one time i went down there was a hurricane that came through and i remember um you know on the road that my aunt lived she had a 300 acre farm uh she, she was elderly some trees went down and I think the neighbors didn't know we were there we could have helped her but they came by with chainsaws and you know very respectful you know Miss Marianne uh, you know we're gonna help you out and uh, yeah they were they were black and she was white and um, they seemed to, to get along and this was something that I did not know about living in upstate New York um, I actually saw you know the, I lived. um, I remember my first job. I heard the N word constantly from people who thought that they were morally superior uh, to Southerners, and so it was just an eye-opening thing um, to see that you know there's there's exceptions to um, these characters, uh, and and you know it's just um, I think there's just a lot that's not told, and and I think you're I'm glad that you're telling another side of the story. So thank you for that.
1: Thank you for sharing your story because that was the other thing I was going to emphasize if that, if there's one of the greatest evils of the way that histori- the historians are telling the story now, is they're ignoring that there was a friendship between black and white. There was also this underlying racism that sometimes became very ugly, and inexcusable. But there was this underlying friendship that never gets told, you don't see the newsreels of, uh, of that kind of a story because they were just too, uh, they were just too Isolated, they weren't isolated. It was they were just too personal. They didn't happen in great groups.
0: Right, right. Well, yeah, we'll have to get you on again and talk about Reconstruction because I know that the prevailing attitude is, you know, the North won the war, but the South won the peace. That I, I, I know the North won both of them, <laughs> the war and the peace. And uh, you know, maybe we'll have you come on and talk about that sometime. I appreciate yeah. your
1: time. Yeah, I'd be delighted to do that. I have, I found a picture, a photo taken during the 1930s, which was about. Four or five white school uh, white children standing in a cotton field, and they're holding watermelons. Obviously, they've finished working for the day, or evidently, they're holding. Uh, some of them are holding watermelons, and right next to them are two black children. Right next to them, and if you look at them, their clothes are the same. They're all barefoot. There's no there's no difference. So what I did I did I said the guy that comes up the responsible for that. The South won the war. The South lost the war, but won Reconstruction. That's a Princeton historian by the name of Guilza. So I sent him a copy of that picture. I said, would you show me the winners? <laughs> me the winners of Reconstruction, this group or this? Yeah.
0: Oh man, well, I, hey, we could probably talk all day. I really appreciate your time and uh, I will let you know when this uh, gets posted. Uh, thank you once again.